I've been having these weird thoughts lately. Like, is any of this for real? Or not? I'm Chris Durston, and this is Philosophy Raga, the podcast all about philosophy and video games. Don't worry, this isn't another Kingdom Hearts episode, size of relief all around, I'm sure. No, this is the first episode, actually, in a brand new module, Ontology. You know, one of the most common reactions I get when I tell people I'm interested in philosophy, or even worse, that I actually have a degree in the whole thing, is something along the lines of, oh yeah, like, is anything even real? And then sometimes they'll even do like this weird little impression of a sort of pseudo-intellectual gremlin or something. It's odd, they kind of wave their arms about like they're a ghost, and they're sort of like, how do we know we're even here, man? And to be fair, I can see why that side of philosophy is something that people would sort of latch onto. It's something that seems kind of arcane and kind of a weird thing to be thinking about to a lot of people, but it's also a bit more immediately apprehensible than other philosophical questions, like, I don't know, whether Carnap was right that the extension of an expression at a state description is determined by applying the semantic rules or the expression's intention to the state description. Because that doesn't make sense, you can't really grasp that immediately. But big questions like, is anything even real, are sort of viscerally peculiar in that anyone can understand what's being asked, but a lot of people will tend to assume that the question's either not quite serious, or that it's operating on some sort of weird stoner methodology because of how obvious most people probably tend to think it is that things are, in fact, real. Nevertheless, ontology is a subject, and it's a pretty big one, actually. The study of being, of what there is. Existence, reality, whether there are different kinds or categories of existence, whether there's an ultimately perfect table floating around somewhere in the ether, all of these are in the domain of ontology. We could start examining a lot of really specific things to see whether we think they're real or not, and if so, what we have to say about the kind of real they might be, but for this module, I think we'll stick to the biggest and most general topic. I think it's fair to say that. The whole of reality. Existence. Whatever you want to call it. The world and everything in it. So let's start with the common sense view, shall we? Immediate knee-jerk reaction. Yep, all of this does in fact exist, and it exists pretty much as I perceive it. Let's just take as read that my impressions cohere with the reality of what's there, and that stuff is indeed there. For example, I'm sitting on a chair right now in front of a desk in a house, and I tend to take for granted that the chair, the desk, and the house are all here. I also tend to think that that's the case independently of what I might think about them. So my belief right now is that if I somehow became convinced while I wasn't looking at my desk that my desk isn't a desk but a giant blue duck, it wouldn't just become a giant blue duck. It would continue to be a desk because that is what it is. Cool times. We might call this view ontological realism, and in fact realism is the term that I was taught for this idea. Having looked into it a bit though, it turns that people don't really use that term very much, partly because there are an awful lot of different kinds of realism of varying specificity, and partly because not that many people are actually completely committed to the belief that everything does indeed, you know, exist pretty much as it seems to. But anyway, this view is kind of boring, isn't it? What we see is what we get, reality just is real and corresponds with the impressions we get of it. That's not a lot of fun, so let's take a bit of a tour. Let's take a quick journey all the way back to ancient Greece, a place that philosophers like to visit pretty regularly. Must have good deals on travel and accommodation or something. 
Now, there's a pretty smart dude living in ancient Greece by the name of Plato. I mean, there's probably a ton of other smart dudes, and Plato's writings are just the ones that happened to have survived and persisted, but at any rate, he's got some interesting stuff to say. One such interesting stuff is a story about a cave. It's a story you might have heard before. There are a couple of different interpretations of the story, but first, let's just remind ourselves how it goes. Imagine, if you will, a group of gangsters in a simulation. Wait, no, that's not it. Imagine a group of prisoners in a cave. There we go. That sounds correct. These prisoners have been in this cave, bound so that they can't leave, can't even turn around, for as long as they can remember. They can't see each other, they can't even examine their own bodies. They're all facing one wall, a flat, broad wall for what it's worth. Somewhere behind the prisoners is a fire, the light from which is shining onto the wall. Now, between the fire and the prisoners, there's a kind of walkway, and there are artists and performers who walk along the walkway carrying these puppets and sculptures. The way the performers position themselves, the prisoners can't see the shadows of the people, but they can see the shadows of the things that they're carrying. These performers manipulate the objects to create shadow pictures on the wall in front of the prisoners, depicting, well, whatever they want. People, animals, landscapes, whatever. The voices of the performers echo off the walls, so that it seems like the shadows are the ones making sounds. To the prisoners who have never seen anything else, this is reality. As far as they know, the shadows in front of them constitute everything that there is. They are real objects, and not only that, but the only real objects. The prisoners have no idea that there even are real things that the puppets might be imitating. For these people, the movement of darkness on the surface in front of them is all there is to the world. Okay, cool. Thanks, Mysterious Voice. No worries. We can take a couple of lessons from this, I think, especially if we keep the story going a little bit longer. In fact, there are two more chapters in the story, and we'll explore the next ones in the next episode of Philosophy Raga, but let's pause here for a sec. What's perhaps most often discussed in relation to Plato's allegory of the cave is actually not ontology, but epistemology, which hopefully you remember from our previous module has to do with knowledge. In the epistemological reading, the people in the cave are ignorant of reason and of all the knowledge that they might gain beyond immediate appearances. They're in darkness, they accept what they see before them at face value of being the truth of things, not knowing that there's so much more that they could be knowing. That's not the only thing we might think about, though. What about what this says about what's real and what there is? Plus, what if the issue of knowledge is inextricably tied up with what there is? What if our capacity to know and to understand puts a sort of hard limit on the extent of what we can determine to be true about the world? Perhaps even we, thinking of ourselves as people not in the cave, we have a capacity to reason, but we just have no real ability to turn around and see what's behind us. How do we know that everything we see in front of us and believe as reality is actually what there is, and that it's not just the shadows cast by some different kind of existence that we just can't access? But look at me, I'm rambling. This is the show about philosophy and video games, and I haven't even mentioned video games this episode. How unbearably dull of me. Okay, so let's spice this up with a more modern example. Ancient Greece, ugh, thousands of years old, ugh, so old. So let's bring it up to date with Descartes, our boy from the extremely recent 1600s. Still too old? Okay. Then let's talk Saints Row 4. Saints Row is an odd franchise. 
It started as like just another third-person crime-em-up in the GTA vein for its first two titles, but by the time of its third entry, it was embracing a different angle by just going for balls-out over-the-top awesomeness. Long story short, by the time the fourth game rolls around, the Saints had gone from a little gang in a little city to the top dogs in the big city, and finally, the leader of the Saints, a person known as the boss, had actually become President of the United States. Where do you go from there? Well, the obvious answer is aliens. So yeah, start of Saints Row 4, world gets invaded by angry super buff aliens, and the first thing they do is put the boss and a bunch of the other humans who didn't die in the initial attack into a hugely detailed simulation. The boss wakes up in a sort of idealized version of the city of Steelport. It's a near-perfect replica of all the streets and buildings and whatnot, but it's also a bit twisted, a little bit too perfect. Everyone's too happy, too compliant. Even the boss finds themselves wanting to go along with it, almost unable to consider that this might not be real life. Naturally, the rest of the game does indeed see the Saints not only realising they're in a simulation, but doing their very best to royally screw things up for the aliens. They take over the simulation and restore themselves to reality where they can do some real damage. This is a bit cave-like, isn't it? It's also very much like a famous thought that Descartes had. See, I knew he was relevant! You might remember Descartes as the guy who said, Cogizo ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Essentially what happened there is that he was trying to work out what he couldn't doubt. He wasn't certain that the world around him was real, but he could at least be sure that he existed, because otherwise how could he be doubting? In the process, he pointed out that it wasn't impossible that there was some sort of evil demon that created a fake reality to deceive him for some reason, an extremely powerful creature that could essentially make him believe whatever it wanted. This demon just, like, made up every detail of the world and shoved it in his mind to trick him, but in fact everything Descartes saw was not what was real. He thought that was possible. This image has been revisited a lot since Descartes' time with more modern images, like a brain in a vat with scientists poking it in certain places to make it believe stuff. Or, of course, the Matrix. For the record, though, Descartes did find a way out of this. He pointed out there was no way that the omnipotent, benevolent god he believed in would ever allow such a demon to do such a thing, and therefore what he thought was reality must indeed be reality. I might have skipped a couple of steps there, he did show more of his working than that, but that's kind of how he ends up solving the problem. The funny thing about the Saints Row situation, of course, is that they escape one bizarre simulated reality and enter what is to them the real world, but by our standards is of course another simulated one. The quote-unquote real world to the Saints is already fictional. We know that, they don't. Except when they're breaking the fourth wall, which does sometimes happen, but yeah. The best thing the Saints have to an actual reality operates on rules that, to us by our reality standards, are still kind of zany, I think it's fair to say. So there we have it. Gangsters wielding giant purple sex toys get stuck in a simulated reality, but are at least able to know the difference between that existence and their own, even if we probably wouldn't think their ultimate reality is real in quite the same way ours is. That was good philosophy. We've not really done too much deep poking today, and that's sort of deliberate. This is Ontology 101, I just want to say what it is so that we can do a bit more exploring in the future. Over the next couple of episodes, we'll be looking at more detail in some theories about how we experience or perceive things, and whether what we think is real is the same as what is real, now that we've at least established a little bit about the possibility that it isn't just as simple as going, oh, this is what's here, that's reality, case closed, done. In the meantime, why not let me know your thoughts? Are you pretty sure that the world is real, or pretty sure it isn't, or somewhere in between? What's your take on whether we can meaningfully say the worlds of video games are real, for that matter? They seem real to the people in them, but we know they're just code. 
I'd love to hear what you think, so hit me up on Twitter at Overthinkery1 or email philosophyraga at gmail.com. Next time, Link's Awakening, maybe, or possibly Final Fantasy X. Or both. We'll see. Also, why a grumpy dictionary man kicking a rock is one of the best philosophical anecdotes of all time. See you then. Thank you ever so much for joining me for this episode of Philosophy Raga. The show is written, edited, and produced by me, Chris Durston, with help from consulting producer Moses Norton. All the music you hear in the show is by me, and the show's logo is by Moses Norton, with graphic design from By Wisdom Designs. The show is part of the Little Fella Media Podcast Network, sponsored by Buzzsprout, which is cool. There are a whole bunch of other shows on the Little Fella Media Podcast Network that you would really like, so you should check them out. Do give Philosophy Raga a like, follow, review, or share. Tag people you think would enjoy the show, post flyers through your neighbours' letterboxes, scream about it on the street, spread the word, I'll love you forever. I will personally make you believe that reality is real, even though we all know it isn't. This particular flame is turning to embers for now, but the fire of wisdom never dies. Bye bye. <laughs>